0: Welcome to the Future Christian
1: Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Reverend Amy Butler to the show. Pastor Amy believes deeply that courageous communities of people who live with tenacious love can change the world. Much of her career has been spent helping build communities of radical witness in the institutional church. She currently leads National City Christian Church as an intentional interim senior minister. Before that, Amy served for five years as the seventh senior minister and the first woman at the helm of the Riverside Church in New York City. Currently, she serves as the interim senior minister at National City Christian Church. She holds degrees from Baylor University, the International Baptist Theological Seminary, and Wesley Theological Seminary. Pastor Amy's professional ministry career began as the director of a homeless shelter for women in New Orleans and she later became Associate Pastor of Membership and Mission at St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church, also there. In 2003, Amy was called to the position of Senior Minister at Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C.'s Chinatown, where she was also the first woman to lead that historic congregation. Though leading institutions of faith in this moment can be one of the most challenging leadership tasks around, she's optimistic about the impact faith communities can have on the world. And when she's not busy leading, teaching, preaching, or writing, Pastor Amy enjoys exploring the city wearing a mask—again, we are in COVID—hanging out with friends at an appropriate social distance, of course. She's an avid reader and loves to write, recently completing her first memoir, which will soon be published by Penguin Random House Books. Pastor Amy is a mom to three amazing young adults who are each making their way in the world— They are her favorites. Uh, She played the cello in high school, but has absolutely no relevance for that in her current life. Her children would say that her status as a licensed motorcyclist is the direct result of a midlife crisis, but she disagrees and she hates exercise with a passion, perpetually bitter about a metabolism that requires it. So let's welcome Reverend Dr. Amy Butler to the show. All right. Welcome to the show, Reverend Dr. Amy Butler. Thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you?
2: Uh, well, hello. I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm, I'm joining you from the beach wearing a sweater because it's too cold to go outside. So um, I'm, I'm currently in a kind of a sad place. You know, <laughs> the beach when you can't go outside, that's not fun.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, talk about Share with our listeners a little bit, if you would, about your spiritual uh, life of faith, what that looked like coming to the faith, and what that looks like today.
2: Sure. Um, This is something I'm just so immersed in right now, telling this story, because I'm finally, finally getting my book ready to go into rotation this fall. And a lot of the essays in the book tell the story of, of that sort of evolution. I grew up in a very conservative, evangelical family. My parents are still... Very committed conservative evangelical Christians. I'm the oldest of five, and I I set out to go to Wheaton College and marry a pastor. Um, you know that was my plan, and then I didn't get in to Wheaton, which I always say, you know, they they must always be like dodge the bullet. <laughs>
0: um,
2: and then I um, I went to Baylor University instead, and took some classes in, in theology and just started the process that so many of us have gone through of sort of dismantling what it is we always believed and rebuilding a different kind of faith. For me, that included um, answering a vocation myself to become a minister, but also <laughs> jumping right in to feed into the mainline church, into liturgy, into... Um, sort of rebuilding the theology that informs how I try to live in the world. So that's it in a, <laughs> in a nutshell. I um, got married very young before I went to seminary. Went to seminary, had three children, couldn't find a job in the church, ran a homeless shelter. Um, so many experiences there impacted my faith, most especially the nuns whom I worked with. And they taught me about spiritual practice. And um, I feel like I've been learning and changing ever since then.
1: What are some spiritual practices that you learned from them?
2: Um, They were, they were so wonderful. They had spiritual practices, um, anything from, you know, morning prayer to sitting down for dinner together and um, creating a rhythm is one of the things they, they taught me was so important, being in community is another thing that they taught me that um, is so critically important. Uh, for me, you know, I need structure. So I have a spiritual director. I have a therapist. Um, I spend every morning uh, sort of getting ready for the day. Usually my reading has um, is related to poetry in some way, shape, or form. And um, I, so I try to keep that rhythm. As, as I'm going through the week. And then a lot of my like devotional scripture work comes from sermon preparation. I think a lot of pastors have that experience.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you heard this uh, growing up, Amy, but uh, I grew up in conservative circles too. And I remember I was always told like sermon prep and such like that, needed to be separate from your quote-unquote personal devotion time. And for me, it was always one and the same. Like Studying for a sermon was uh, very spiritual. It was helpful for me in my spiritual life. It wasn't just an academic exercise.
2: Absolutely. And actually, I'm so happy to hear you say that because – The same has been true for me, and that's a little teeny microcosm of how my overall understanding of faith has changed. You know, I grew up in youth group where it was 30 minutes in the morning, quiet time. You had to have a prayer journal. You had to keep track, you know, did God answer the prayer when, how, you know. And letting go of that has been so freeing, freeing to encounter God in so many different ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the um that's one of the things that I've appreciated most about a more expansive uh, Christianity is the freedom to not just be limited in the ways that you encounter or can potentially encounter God, I guess.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah, we uh we we like rules. Well, I—I'll speak for myself. Th- I like rules and lists, and um, I'm a big rule follower. Oldest child, you know, so um, give me the rules, and I will follow them. And I've ironically spent most of my adult life breaking all the rules.
1: <laughs> so you have, and I'm gonna—I'm gonna throw this on you here. Uh, I guess I warned you this was gonna happen. What tradition of Baptist uh, is? Do I understand that right? That you grew mm-hmm. up in.
2: So uh, my parents were not denominationally inclined, shall we say. So we were always like helping somebody start a church or, you know, they're conservative Presbyterians now who go to, you know, a church that um, meets at an elementary school. And Mm -hmm. so that was really my childhood. Um, I was ordained in a Southern Baptist church Mm. in New Orleans Mm -hmm. and then um, had my, have since had my ordination recognized in Um, American Baptist churches, which I would consider my home denomination. Ironically, you know, now I'm pastoring the the National Church of Disciples of Christ, an amazing denomination, um, who have recognized my ordination as well. So, um,
1: Yeah, I'm actually ordained in the Disciples of Christ, so we'll give a shout-out to my colleagues in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ.
2: (laughs) All right. I love that denomination. You guys are... You guys are small enough to be agile, and I love that about it.
1: Yeah, but I do have a couple of colleagues I worked with in uh, CPE who are American Baptists, so I'm great. I'm uh, growing a fondness for them too, for y'all too. So we're
2: basically the same. You just have communion more often. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, we like our communion. That's for sure. Well, uh, I wanted to just, I just kind of wanted to talk to you to share and to hear some of your wisdom and experience and insights uh, from your years of ministry. And one of the things that I thought was interesting you had on your website is that you've been the first woman, excuse me, the first woman to serve at three, con- th- and I can't say this, you've been the first wor- woman to serve at three congregations, At youth- what man, I can't say this, You know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Can you talk more about some of the challenges you faced as the first woman to serve at those congregations and some of the challenges that still need to be addressed?
2: Ooh, that's a big topic. Um, So I did not set out to uh, be a feminist rule breaker. I was just trying to follow my call and, um, my conviction that God had called me to uh, pastor and lead congregations. Um, that said, I, as you said, have found myself being the first woman in a lot of important places. And I was the first woman at, at Calvary. I was the first woman at Riverside. I'm the first woman in National City. And um, I just remember when I came to Calvary, the Washington Post called me and wanted an interview, you know, first woman at this Mm -hmm. historic church. And a friend of mine who works in PR said, Mm -hmm. you know, now is your moment. You get to decide what you want to stand for. Like, Mm -hmm. do you want your ministry to be about being the first woman everywhere you go? Or do you want your ministry to be about something else? And I decided really something else, you know, like I am going to create communities that reflect sort of the radical gospel. That said, um, it's important that I'm a woman. And I, I'm I'm coming to I have come to understand that in ways I didn't before I went to Riverside in particular. Um I my initial approach to all of this was like, I'll just do the work and I'll do it better, mm. which is I know what all women have to do. Um but then like at Calvary, I'd have little girls coming up to me and saying, uh, "Pastor Amy, could I borrow one of your stools because I, I want to be a pastor for Halloween?" Or, um, you know, my own daughter, my own daughter's shock at finding out that men could could actually be pastors too. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, representation is so important. And um, and then when I went to Riverside, again, big big fuss made out of me being a woman, um, which made me feel a bit um, annoyed would be a nice way to say it because uh, I was not hired for my hair. You know, I, you know, I had to bring a level of professionalism and competency to that job. Um, But then again, there were women all over the country who were emailing me, writing me letters saying, you know, thank you so much for being in that pulpit because it helps my people see a different reality. And so I have come to see that as part of my calling and um, to see all the women who are now in pulpits is, is so gratifying to me.
1: Well, I can only imagine um, what, I can only imagine the kind of the, challenges and barriers you've had to work through and overcome. So uh, I pray for your, your spirit and your soul. Uh, and I thank you for your dedication to, to your call to, to deal with that and to work with and work against, I guess, some of those challenges that you've had to, to face. Thanks. So I think this kind of relates to, to another question I was going to ask you. Uh, you write that the church can break our hearts – more often than it does the gospel work of healing us and that just quote i think breaks my heart just reading it because i know it to be often true um i think as myself who still loves the church deeply feels called to the church i want to know as a hopeful church leader How can I change this? How can I help work to change this dynamic?
2: Mm. What a great question. Um, So in order to fully appreciate that quote, you have to um, have a little context for that sermon. It was my last sermon that I ever preached at Riverside Church. Uh, I knew that my time there had ended, but the congregation did not, and they Mm. would not know until the next day. I was not allowed to talk about it. And, um, I tried to think it was also pride Sunday and there were so many people in the pews who have been hurt by the church. And I tried to think what, what would I want to say? What would be the last thing that I would want to say? Like, don't give up, don't give up on, don't give up on faith community because it's the only way we're going to change the world if we, we do it together. And, um, It was, I mean, I'm getting teary when I'm talking to you about it. Now it was the hardest sermon I've ever preached. Um, And I walked away from that day deeply disenchanted with the church. Um, I, I took the call at Riverside because I believe that God is inviting the church to do a new thing. And I thought if anybody could show us how to do it, it would be that church. And... As I was leaving, I really questioned, you know, is that is that true? Is that, is that my call? And um, in the intervening years, it's been three years now, um, I've been pastoring National City for almost two. And it's funny, I believe it again. I believe it again. <laughs> yeah. believe it again. Um, and this congregation in particular has... Um, Sort of loved me back to life, and I see in them you know this sort of openness to change, like um, ability to welcome mm-hmm. whatever God's spirit is calling them to be, to, uh, keeping each other accountable, telling the truth, um, allowing for vulnerability and um, and so I'm, I still believe it. <laughs> Even even with all the hurt, I still believe it, and I know a lot of you do too. And so, um, I think it's incumbent upon people who lead the church, people like you and me, to create communities that are accountable and that um, um, are living their faith in a in a out loud in a community. I also will say to you, Lauren, you are a white man. Um, You have the most privilege of all, and so sometimes your voice can say things that the voices of of others cannot say with any um, heft. And so I'd like to challenge all the white men who are out there leading congregations um, to get uncomfortable and to say the hard things and to help our people create communities that thrive.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really struck by um Really struck by your vulnerability and sharing, and I appreciate that. Um, I'm just I'm grateful too for your your um, commitment to church and the faith. And I think we'd both agree that there's many people who've been hurt by church and have just decided to walk away. And I'm not someone who wants to judge them for that, and I don't think you are either. But also, I, I'm so appreciative of folks. Um, Who've been hurt deeply, and have still, you know, chosen to to lead and to serve. Um,
2: it was it was interesting when I was building a team at Riverside. I was looking for, you know, fine, brilliant, smart, the best in the field, and I found very quickly that most people with a lot of experience in the church wouldn't touch that church with ten foot pole and. <laughs> As you, as you know, I hired some young, amazing superstars who to this day are some of my proudest relationships and um, accomplishments as a leader to have brought those young leaders into um, that position of prominence. But I will say that what I found is that so many of you, young, talented, Amazing people who feel called to change the world are leaving the church and are creating opportunities for faith, community, and world transformation outside the church. And that, you know, has sort of led me to where I am today with my um, building, beginning and building invested faith.
1: Well, I want to ask about invested faith here in a second, but I also to you mentioned, uh, you had another quote on your website, that which struck me, that church can be a powerful force for healing and hope. How do you see churches doing that?
2: Mm. Well, I always say that um, church is never going away because as human beings, we have this sort of intrinsic need to um, be in community and to ask some really hard questions about who we are, why we're here, what our lives mean. And um, particularly in the wake of COVID, when so many of us were isolated beyond what we'd ever experienced before, the need for community is larger and, and more pressing than ever before. And the church is just like this is our moment, you know, mm-hmm. like if we were, if we were business people, we'd be like, this is our moment, you know, <laughs> this, we have what people need. Yes. And yes. um, so, you know, putting doctrine aside and all of the things that have hurt people and turned them off from the church, like we can begin there, you know, this is a community where you are safe. This is a community where you are loved. This is a community where your voice can be heard. Like what if we could do just that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what, That's been what's most been compelling to me is this – I hope it's not mistaken, but this internal belief that we do have the message that the world needs to hear. And um, I want to get it to people, but (laughs) it's hard. It's hard. Um, So one of the ways – and you you mentioned this, that you're trying to lead is with this organization called Invested Faith – Can you talk more about that and what are its aims?
2: Yes. Um, Thank you for asking me about that. This began in 2019 as I was sort of um, in the wake of leaving Riverside. I was, you know, spinning and I had a lot more time to think about some of the larger questions that so many of us think about,
0: Mm -hmm. which
2: is, you know, the church is in decline. So what does that mean? Does it really mean that you and I are called to spend all of our time and energy at committee meetings, trying to figure out how to fix the roof. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I suspect that that's not the case. So I started wondering, and then that fall, I read an article in the guardian, which said that religious institutions in the United States hold more assets than Microsoft, Apple and Google combined. Wow trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Wow. And it makes sense, right? Because the church was like fundamental to our societal structure of most of the 20th century. Yeah. And having been the pastor of historic congregations that become targets of developers when the theology of scarcity leads them to obsess about the roof, um, I started thinking like when these assets are lost, like when that little church in Pennsylvania locks the door and walks away, they are gone forever. Yeah. They're gone forever. So what could we do to create a space that is a hopeful investment for congregations and institutions that are closing, a way that they can say, we are sending our our witness forward and may our living be a blessing, right? And then turn around And empower those of you who are out in the world um, creating these new ways of being followers of Jesus in the world. Yeah. And this is so exciting to me because I I feel it's founded on a really um, strong and right theological perspective. Like Jesus said, you know, like, throw the seeds everywhere Mm -hmm. and see where they pop up, Mm -hmm. you know? God is not going away. What's limiting us is our ability to see God in the world. Yeah, And so, you know, it just was this, like, sort of dream of mine, and I went away in October of 2019 with a group of really smart people who workshopped the idea with me over and over and over again. And then we started, and we are now beginning year three. Um, we have begun giving out unrestricted, small unrestricted grants to social entrepreneurs who are faith based and who are, whose efforts are rooted in faith and who are working to change systems. And I have met some of the most interesting, amazing people doing uh, outstanding work. And now in this year, we're moving into the phase where it's time for us to begin building the fund in earnest.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Our, um, The money that we're giving away has been given by so many of you individuals who sort of hear this idea and are like, hey, maybe this could happen. Now we need to talk to institutions that are dying, denominations, churches, schools, uh, places that do not want to walk away and close the door and have their living and their witness be forgotten.
1: There's a lot of neat opportunities uh, I'm hearing in there, because I imagine uh, invested faith gets into the areas of uh, impact investing, uh, social entre- entrepreneurial grants, those kind of things. Yes.
2: Well, um, interestingly enough, we are um, a fund. We're not a nonprofit. We're a fund okay. that is held. It's, it's a donor advised fund that is held at a company called Impact Assets. Okay. Impact Assets builds funds for people who have a lot of money. Want to use it and invest it in a way mm. that is is healing and hopeful. So they are building a fund for us. So like you could give us a million dollars, you would give it to Impact Assets, and they would put it in our fund. Um, and and so we our grants go to social entrepreneurs who meet three criteria. Their efforts are one rooted in faith. Two, they're changing systems. Like it's not just like they're. You know starting a food pantry which is excellent work of course, but um, doing efforts that are um, changing changing systems and then third that they're building financial models that are different that are self sustainable so like it's my conviction that um, our our current model of philanthropy where uh, nonprofits just ask for money all the time is not sustainable yeah. Right? We're gonna have to create um, organizations and businesses that do well while doing good.
1: Yeah, we both seem to have some some uh, external activities happening around
2: us right now. I'm so sorry. Do you want to say that again? Do you want to do that again? No, because it's
1: fine. It's I'm, fine. Okay. Um, I'm I'm appreciative of your uh, your fund here because there's two things I want to uh, observe at least. Is a I think it's interesting that it's not a nonprofit um, because I, I think this is my opinion. You may not agree, uh, but I think too often we. What am I trying to say? Like there are other ways of doing good in the world besides just being a nonprofit. And like you say, when you're just a nonprofit, I mean, uh, you're you're essentially just constantly chasing money in some ways. So I really think it's uh, I really like. Some of those models you're you're building here of sustainability in funding uh, to produce good work for people.
2: Mm-hmm. I, you know, the theology underlying all this, Lauren, is a theology of abundance. Yeah. And the church has been long been lacking in this. Yeah. And you know, I don't blame us. I mean, we're steering institutions that are are. In decline and will not survive in our current model. So, of course, that's a human response, which is, you know, to um, button down and to clasp more firmly and to um, not to share. But that's not the way of Jesus. And so, this is the challenge, especially for resident theologians like all of you who are pastors. It's your job to teach this theology of abundance and to push people to reimagine the world in a new way.
1: You know, um, so I have, you know, eight years of theological education between undergrad and then seminary, and I'm almost done, hopefully this spring, with an MBA that I started because I wanted to be better equipped to lead in the church. And the thing that I've come out (laughs) with is perhaps more disparaging of capitalism than I came in. But I'm going to make a point here uh, t- to you is uh, to your point is that um, I think you know too often we we look at at these systems as being um, <laughs> as being incalculable and, and unable to to advance the common good and I think there are some good things that c- that can come out of uh, of this stuff and I think um, it's so great to see uh, you leading and you building opportunities here.
2: Thanks. I mean, I I really have to credit so many people who have taught me along the way, including um, one of my colleagues, Todd Adams, who is now the president and CEO of your pension fund. Mm,
0: uh, yes.
2: He was a young pastor along with me, and he always said to me, talk about money, Amy. Like, we we need to talk about money. Like, this is part of our lives, and if we don't apply our faith to this we are do not doing our people um a good service and so he taught me not to be afraid
1: yeah i think i was thinking that theology of scarcity which you mentioned how in many ways economics is really like the the study of scarcity and it's been my observation that so much of scarcity is manufactured yes and how that contrasts with the abundance that we read about in scripture,
2: Yes, but it's scary, right? I mean, we just preached the passage in Luke where Jesus calls his disciples, and you know they laid down everything and followed him, mm-hmm. and because they believed in sort of this idea of God's got this, God has a world of thriving and abundance for all of us, let's go, and like what would it take for us to get to the the church to that place, right?
1: yeah. Well, how about this then? As a good social entrepreneur, perhaps you might have this in 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 hand. Give me a good elevator pitch for Invested Faith. Uh, if you're talking to if you're talking to a pastor or a church, right now.
2: Okay, so I would say that Invested Faith is a fund that receives the assets of instit- Christian institutions at the end of their life cycles and redistributes them in small, unrestricted grants to social entrepreneurs who are changing the world. That's, the, that's it in a nutshell. And you can see on our website, which is investedfaith.org, um, the kind of people who this money is going to. It's like Leah Lonsberry, who started a bakery in Atlanta called Just Bakery. They employ new Americans, they teach them job skills and English, and they get them settled and working uh, jobs that are sustainable and can support their families. There is um, Andre Brown, who is um, an actor in L.A. who is almost finished producing and editing a documentary film about what it means to be an LGBTQ person in the black church his father's a pastor, his grandfather's a pastor, and we have so m- many documentaries and shows about what it means to be a white LGBTQ qu- Christian in the church, but what about the black experience? So he's doing that. Um, we have Alicia Gordon in Harlem who's working with um, black uh, single mothers who is helping them get that last sort of um, class that they need to start the business they've always dreamed of. Um, these people will inspire you to know and see again that God's work is ongoing in the world It's just like sometimes we're sitting inside in the pews like closing our eyes and missing we're missing we're missing it
1: yeah i was in a I was in a so, social entrepreneurship group with Andre and then I think another uh, uh person you've 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 gotten and they have some great work uh and I saw little trailer for Andre's video uh, for his documentary. It's quite good. It's quite good. Um, yeah. So, so I guess there's multiple ways in that churches can participate. It's obviously a closing of a church and the, and the property is getting sold. I imagine it's, uh, you know, you have endowments you're looking to make, they can give a contribution to. Uh, I imagine folks can make a regular contribution to invested faith too.
2: So three ways. First, um, if you're an individual who cares about the future of the church and really believes that God is showing up in these places that we can't quite predict, and you want to direct your resources to a place that is going to give them with a sense of abundance, uh, you can easily give uh, regular and generous gifts, personal um, uh, tax-deductible gifts to Invested Faith. Easy to give on the website. Secondly, there are many churches and institutions who are not dying, who have foundations that they don't know what to do with, mm-hmm. right? So little pots of money that, like, we want to be impactful in the world, but we don't know how. So, of course, those folks can come on and match the grants that we're Giving to these social entrepreneurs. And that, we've just had our first one, which is really, really exciting. Yeah. You know, a church foundation looks on the website and says, that person is doing something we really care about. We're going to match that grant. And then the third thing is, of course, let us help you create um, a sense of legacy for your institution that your assets will be funding, actively funding the future of God's work in the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, all good stuff here. Well, let me ask you one more question uh, before we take a break, Uh, and this is perhaps more from my own learning um, than anything, but you said on your website that you're fascinated by the question, and I'm I'm fascinated to hear your answer here. What does it take to build a community that can change the world? As someone who cares deeply about the church myself, I want to hear if you've Got any traction there, any thoughts there to that question?
2: Hmm. Well, my experience as a pastor in trying to do that has always included one important quality, and that is the quality of discomfort. Um, I think any formational faith community's job is to make us uncomfortable with the way things are so that we can think about how they should change. And, you know, that has not always made me the most popular person. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when we have communities that will, like, that will agree to raise the level of discomfort mm-hmm. and have the hard conversations and challenge each other to, to change, that's how we change the world. Absolutely, positively. And I always think of the church too as sort of like the practice place for what we do in the world. Hmm. Like what we do with each other, what we're building here is what we want to see replicated in the world. And so if what your church is building is not what you want to see replicated in the world, you need to find another church.
1: Yeah, well, that's so good. And I I think this fits into this entire conversation about um, a different kind of economic perspective because a church that – elevates discomfort, you know, it's not going to be a church that people are pouring in (laughs) on the weekends dying to be discomfortable. I mean, that's going to be a a long, uh, slow, but committed group of people who are committed to being uncomfortable and following the way of Jesus.
2: That's right. I I always say, like, it's the worst marketing slogan ever. Take up your cross and follow me. Like, seriously? Lauren, you and I are professionals who have to sell that.
0: Yeah
1: you know? (laughs) Oh, forgive me for that. Uh, Yeah. You're making it real here. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right. We're back with uh, Dr. Reverend, Reverend Dr. Amy Butler. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, These closing questions, you can take as seriously or not as you'd like to, Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do?
2: Um, my answer to that is I do not want to be the Pope ever, ever. The end.
1: That's fair. That's fair. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life?
2: 500 million percent Amy Semple McPherson. Oh. She was an evangelist who yeah. uh, started the Foursquare Gospel Church in California. And she was like uh, I, uh, sort of a caricature. I would I would love to just sort of sit on side and watch her do her thing.
0: Mhm.
1: I think I've gotten that answer from someone someone else interestingly enough. <laughs> what do you think history will remember from our current time and place?
2: I think we're living through the rise of totalitarianism and sort of the um what I hope will be the severing of religion and politics in our country. Um, this is an extraordinarily fractured time. And I think that we will, um, I think that it's dangerous time. So if we're looking back on this time, we, we may look back on it as the start of um, some really hard things.
0: Boy, it's, it's
1: hard to think about it, but I think you're right on. Um, What are your hopes? What are your hopes for the future of Christianity?
2: Mm. So, my hope is always that we become edgier, smaller, edgier, tougher, more prophetic, like more on the margins, um, that we are always living in a way that is um, pushing back at empire and culture and offering a different way. Um, I think the 20th century got us all enmeshed. And now it's time for us to uh, be who we were called to be. And that's my wish.
1: Yeah. Um, where can people find out more about you? So you give a big plug here if you want for yourself, Invested Faith, and then it sounds like you have a book coming out too, right?
2: Right. You can read more about me, com, And my book goes into rotation this fall. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait for that to be done. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um so look for it in 2023 from Random House. And I, um, I'd i love it if anyone would take a look at Invested Faith, www.investedfaith.org. And if you are part of a community that is looking to create a legacy or you have extra funds and you're interested in being part of what we're doing, please reach out to me. There's a link on the website.
1: Great, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation and your insights and your your sharing your story. So uh, wish
0: you God's peace.
2: Same to you, Lauren. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future dot com One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. Yeah. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul roe Thanks, and go in peace. Yeah.